Psalm 90. Uh, so the context of Psalm 90 is it's Moses at the end of his life. And um, Moses, uh, this great character I just talked about that didn't circumcise his son, and yet he, he saw the people of God uh, being rescued. He saw the demise of all the gods of Egypt. Uh, Moses in his uh, final psalm, Psalm 90. Um, that's one thing I want to point out with Moses as, as before we read this. Um, Moses, uh, when you think about Moses, you might see Charlton Heston you know, parting the Red Sea, right, in the uh, Ten Commandments movie. Um, you might think of Moses and all the plagues and all his leadership. And you might ask yourself, what was the one job Moses had? When you think about it, what, what was the one job Moses had? Like his, his defining mission in life and and i don't know about you but there are times i'm just jealous of that one one mission point out this is what i'm going to do this is what god created me for called me for equipped me for what would you say moses's was you you would probably say moses's one job was to take these slaves and deliver them to the promised land that was moses's one job these grumbling complaining fearful slaves numbers upwards of a million and and take them into the promised land and if if you would have asked moses moses what what keeps you going man what keeps you going you're like walking in circles man it's up and down it's doubt and grumbling it's plague it's people being swallowed up it's it's just over there moses <laughs> you know <laughs> Well, let's, let's take a straight line over there. What keeps you going? Moses may have said, I just want to see this to the end. Man, I just, I just want to see how this amazing God who has shown himself to me more than any other patriarch in the scriptures, how he brings this about. And I've been working at this with these people for 40 years. In fact, the ones that I left... They died on the way. Right? They died on the way. It's like in the old West when you know people used to go west and it, and you know there'd be a whole different group of people by the time they got there. You know, it's not like us. It's five minutes. You know, you're on the plane and then two hours later, right? Moses, like, I, I want to see this. And if you know the story of Moses, you know what happens at the end, right? God says you're not going to go. One of the beautiful things about watching my father age is for years after his retirement, he would perseverate on the big church that he pastored and all the things they did. And he would remember renting this big facility and it was wonderful for Easter because the church couldn't hold everybody and we'd rent something like, it'd be like us renting the PAC here. And it was filled and it was a full orchestra and he had all of those memories and and some of it i think was just him kind of grasping this my life is ending uh did i fulfill god's purpose for me but then the last three or four years of his life he didn't talk about any of those any of those things we would call accomplishments um and i think i told you this he he, he took this honorary doctorate and he threw it away you know he's like I, mark i can't wait to be with the lord and that was his focus. And rather than anxiety over the way the churches were going or the way our nation was going at times, 
It was ruled by this peace of I'm going to be with the Lord. And so in Numbers 20, we read about the people grumbling against Moses and against Aaron. And this is what they say in verse 3 of chapter 20. This is what the people say to Moses and Aaron. Mind you, these people had seen the uh, Egyptians killed in the Red Sea. They had been fed bread from heaven. They say, would that we had perished. They came into a dry area and they were worried about water. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Uh, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? We should die here both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron take this to the Lord. They take this grumbling and complaining, and they take it to the Lord. And verse 7, it says, The Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. And Moses spoke, verse 10, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I gave, that I have given them. I don't know about you, but it just seems to me oh, that's a bit over the top. Right? Does it seem that way? It was just a moment. Maybe you've had those moments in your life, just something you did or said, and you just want to take it back because it seemed to have erased. 20, 30, 40 years of good stuff. It was a moment, right? Moses was just tired. He's tired of these people. He goes to the rock, and instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. It's interesting because God says, you you didn't believe in me, and and yet Moses did believe in him, right? Moses did believe God God is going to bring water out of this rock, right? He believed that, but he didn't just quite do it the way God said. So, you know, when I was talking about baptizing the girls and all of that, I, I, I take that seriously, and so should you. How does God direct our relationship with him to be? And so I want to correct what we think. Moses' job wasn't to bring the people in the promised land. Right? Moses' job, as it says in Numbers, is to uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Moses, that's your God. That's your goal. That's your job. You are to hold me as holy in the eyes of the people 
of Israel. Moses comes to the end of his life, and he writes Psalm 90. Let's read this together. Stand, please. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like a grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life were 70, or if by reason strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Uh, Tammy has a stepmom. Her name is Mar. Mar is uh, sweet and loving and kind, and she collects antiques. Now, you know what antiques are, right? They're a rich person's way of hoarding. <laughs> right? They, they find these things that, uh, you know, it's a 45-year-old box of matches. And it sits on a shelf. Now, uh, when you go into Mars' house, it's, it's wonderfully clean, but it is full of these things. And Mar tells us, these are for you. These are for you. I, I don't want to get rid of stuff because I know that when I pass, you're, you're going to want some of these things. And, and I, I, it's, she's not my stepmom, but I don't know if any of the daughters have said, Mom, we don't want any of that stuff, right? But there's a sense that this is what I've accumulated. I found this. I found it from this era and from this era and from this era. And when I talked about my father in his last days, it was not so much, here is what I have done, here is what I've got, but it was, here is where I'm going. Here is where I'm going. And I've told you before, the verse that he just loved was that when, when Christ uh, says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he just, he would perseverate on that every visit. He was like, I want to make sure you know this, Mark. This is how close Christ is to his people. I'm sure when I pass, uh, my kids are going to fight over all of my taxidermy. I'm sure of it. I, I know Taylor has a thing for the Gemsbach. Well, actually, I, you know, it was a big joke. Nobody really wants it. 
But just recently, my grandson, he keeps going in and he, he keeps patting one of the gems box and, and he walks over to the bear and he's like, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll be changed. But, you know, I look at those things on the wall and I'm like, is this what I have to show? Right. Is this is look at my great accomplishments. Right. You can go to Texas and pay twenty five hundred dollars and get one of those. Right. I mean, but there's something about it, isn't it? What am I going to leave? What's going to be my legacy? Moses was the leader of a group of homeless people for 40 years. If anyone deserved a home, if anyone deserved a dwelling place, if anyone deserved a castle or a house on the lake, wouldn't it be Moses? And it was beautiful. At the end of his life, what does he say? I, I, I was not allowed to go into the promised land. Uh, this is my prayer. I'm a man of God. He doesn't say that in a proud way. But he's like, that's who I am. <laughs> I'm not Moses the conqueror. I'm not Moses the savior. Not Moses, the one that gave a system of laws that we still use in, in its skeleton today, the good ones anyway. Um, I'm not the leader. I'm just a man of God. I'm sure his bucket list would have been. I just want to see. And yet at the end of his days, what does he say? You, God, are my dwelling. You, God, are my eternal place. The sermon in the sentence this morning is that to have our God as our dwelling place, it allows us to live a life of gratitude in spite of unmet expectations. And Moses' expectations weren't sinful in and of themselves, were they? He, he, he longed to see the fulfillment of God's promise to these people. And yet, rather than ending his life a bitter man on the side of the river, he ends his life writing this prayer. God is my dwelling place. I have learned that to be with God is greater than to be anywhere else. And so we'll just look at these three parts of this psalm quickly this morning. The first is he says God's our dwelling place and, and our thanksgiving, it, it must start there. I talk about identity a lot because it's a hot topic, but Moses' identity is always tied to his relationship with God. And I would say every human being that you encounter in the scriptures, that is how their identity is. They're either a friend of God or an enemy of God, a child of God. Um, and Moses says, uh, here's, here's who I am. I, I belong to God. I am a man who belongs to God. God makes us with him a home. It's interesting in 1 Chronicles 17 when David had rested from war, there's an account where he goes to the prophet Nathan and says, hey, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan says, go do whatever is in your heart. Go do it. God's with you. Go do it. And then God comes to Nathan and goes, hey, why'd you tell him I said to do this? I, did I tell you to do that, Nathan? 
And you see him going back like, whoa, 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 whoa. I assume that God would want you to do this, and God doesn't want you to do that. David, you're not building me a home. He goes on to say it. I'm building you a home. Um, God makes us a home. Uh, There's two types of travelers. Well, maybe more, but I like to put them in two types. When we go to a VRBO, Tammy unpacks. Like, if I was at a VRBO for a month, I'd still live out of a suitcase. Right? There'd be stuff hanging all over the place. We go to a hotel sometimes for a night. And Tammy unloads our bags into the drawers. She sets up a system. Here's where your keys will go because she knows me. She knows if I do not have a system, I will lose. Seriously, if my head wasn't attached, right, it would be gone somewhere. We'd be getting ready to leave. I don't know where the car keys are or the car. Um, I... <laughs> What room are we in again? Right? She, she sets it up. And I always say, I call this, you know, I call her whammer. So I'm always, I come through and I'm like, these are wham tracks. You know, you can see that, that Tammy has come and she's, she's entered the place. When you get a VRBO, I mean, it's it. She'll, she'll work through with her mind and she'll figure everything out. It'll all be nicely organized. And Moses understood that about our God. That to be with him is to be at home. I have a hard time answering that question when I, when I was in Virginia. Hey, where's your home? Well, currently, we live in Oklahoma. Oh, but what do you call home? I don't know. We had a kid here, a kid there, got married here, lived over there, lived over here, was born here, been on three different continents. Where's home? I know I feel home with my wife. But how much more so is he saying, my home is dwelling with God. And it just doesn't matter where that is on planet Earth. For God is my eternal home. If you drive onto Patricia Island, you can see now that there's a house that's been demolished. Right as you come towards the, the golf course, right, there's a house. And those of us who know what happened in that house, that there were two people murdered in that house, um, you know, when I saw the excavator come in there, and this house, probably not more than five years old, tearing apart that house. You know, I, I looked at it, and immediately I knew. I'm like, people don't want to look at that house. They don't want to see that piece of real estate. They don't want to, they want to go drive to the golf course to have a drink with some friends and play around a golf and be reminded of the horrific evil that can be dwelling just in our community that we just, we assume's not there. That's other places, right? That's not Grove, America, right? So let's tear down that house. I'm not saying it's not wrong. Please don't hear that. Let's put something beautiful there in its place. I mean, isn't that what our God will do? Tear, tear down the broken houses and clean out the horrible rooms and the horrible history and build something beautiful. Moses knew that. God is my eternal home. And why is that important? Because if you pick up at verse 3, Moses now is recounting, right? Moses saw a ton of stuff. Moses saw some very bloody things, right? Moses saw lots of loss and death and destruction. Just pick a portion in numbers and you're not too many chapters away from something terrible happening to the people that are grumbling and complaining. And Moses says, here's why it's wonderful that God is my home because God's judgment is just, but it is also 
severe. God judges the people of God. Verse 7, he's like, we're brought to an end by your anger. In Numbers 14, that generation died in the wilderness. Numbers 16, 14,700 people are killed because they rebel against Moses and Aaron. In Exodus 32, God goes to Moses, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make you into a new nation. And Moses says, what about your covenant? Oh God, what about your covenant? So Moses had seen this, the severe judgment of God. But it was necessary. And we we read over those things and we're like, is this really necessary? It's necessary. Because God hates evil. He will remove all of it one day from our existence. Proves his power, his holiness. And it gives us the consequences for not following him. He did that to the nations that fought against them, but he did it even to his own people. But how much worse was it for the nations around them? Moses saw the Canaanites. He was, we believe he was the one that penned uh, Genesis. And so he, you know, he'd written about the fire coming down on Sodom. He and his sister Miriam had seen the Egyptians in their chariots stuck in the mud as the waters came over and drowned the Egyptian army. I always think it's funny when we teach kids the song, you know? The horse and the rider flown into the sea. <laughs> like, that's a horrible thing, <laughs> right? It's not some little, wee. we'll triumph of the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. That was not fun to watch, most likely. Maybe it was. Maybe they felt the vengeance of all those years of slavery and those babies being thrown into the Nile. But Moses saw that. Our God's judgment is severe. How wonderful that he is my home. And in verse 8, he says, Our iniquities are before us. We're thankful to our God because he is our home. His judgment is severe. Verses 11 to 17. Our God is to be trusted. And so there are seven prayers that Moses then does on this. And as Bo was saying earlier, you know, these Psalms are for us. They really, they're for us. They lay out even a structure for us. He he, considers who God is at the very beginning, right? Who is he? Everlasting to everlasting. Right? Before even the mountains were born. He, He is everlasting. He is God. And then it ends with these seven prayer requests. I'm going to run through them. First, he says, teach us to number our days, for that will give us a heart of wisdom. We pray, Lord, may we know our frailty, right? It, it, it is okay. Our God knit us together. And, and, and so it's like number our days. We're saying you are eternal. We're not. We're temporal. You're immortal. We're mortal. Teach us to number our days. So that will give us a heart of wisdom to account uh, for the passing of our time on earth. Second, have pity on us. Oh God, do not give us what we've earned or do not give us what we deserve. Lord, take pity on us. It's a hard part of the gospel for many of us. We don't like pity. It's one of the most offensive things about our gospel. But it is one of the most, most, most wonderful, comforting things. Our God takes pity. When we take pity on that, that's because we take pity on someone that can't fix themselves, save themselves, and are, and are most likely in a situation of their own doing. Right? That's pity. And Moses says, oh, Lord, have pity on us. Thirdly, 
Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What is he saying? Father, our hunger, when we wake up in the morning and we're hungering for that cup of coffee or that donut or whatever it is, we also have a hunger as human beings driven towards purpose. May that purpose be fulfilled in you. Yes, we'll go back and we'll do our business and we'll, we'll, we'll have relationships and we'll do our work. But Father, that inward hunger, can it be satisfied by you and your steadfast love? Fourthly, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Affliction by God leads to gladness. Moses was able to see the days of evil and know that those days will be eclipsed by the good and glorious days of God dwelling with his people. He's asking for perspective. Fifth, let your work be shown to your servants. Now, he doesn't mean here just uh, my creation, but it's a twofold meaning. Let your work be shown. It's taken me many, many years for me to come to grips with the things I can't do souls I can't reach, the relationships I can't reconcile, the eras, the stories, the whatever, the things about myself I can't fix, but let your work be shown. It belongs to you. This is what you are to do, and also for us. Lord, what would you have me do this day? I love this. It says, and, and also, will you show it to our children? Let your work be shown to us and to our children. So parents here, your, your, your children need to know the work of the Lord that he has done in your life. How he has healed, how he has led you, how he has corrected you, how he's turned you from worthless things how he has brought your life at times on a precipice and said, no, I'm here to rescue you. I won't let you do this. I won't let you have that. He prays for that. Let your favor be on us. Sixthly, we must have all of it if we're to last. And seventh, will you establish the work of our hands? Yes, establish the work of our hands. I love that. I love that part of Psalm 90. Moses is still saying, Lord, you've made us. And when you created us, the garden, it tells us before sin entered the world, you gave us work. We had a role in your creation. Human beings had a role in your creation. Uh, He named the animals. He was to subdue. He was to care for the garden. And I believe that's in us. There is this sense of I, I want what I do with my hands or with my life to be established for good for you. In Deuteronomy 3, uh, 23 to 27, we read this. Moses here says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, 
enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. Moses pleaded, and God, like a good father, said, we're done visiting this. We're done visiting this. You are not going to wear me out like some toddler might wear out mom. right? You're not going to wear me out. Do not ask me again. But Moses, I will let you gaze into it. I will let you gaze into it and see. Now, in Matthew 17, we read this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. You know where that is? It's in the promised land. Matthew 17. Jesus goes up on the hill. He's transfigured. We get a, a sense of his glory. Peter is overwhelmed when he sees it. He notices that it's Elijah, and he notices it's Moses, and Peter's like, it's good that I'm here. Let's make three tents. You know, and those of us who know Peter, we love him because his mouth abhors a, a vacuum like mine does, and he just doesn't know what to do, so he just starts saying stuff. Like, And then the voice from heaven says, no, 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 no. This is my son. And that voice from heaven is so powerful that they fall down and they're afraid. And then Jesus touches them and it's just him. You realize what's going on in that situation? I mean, you're in the promised land. Christ, they're seeing a, 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 some, some of what he will be like in glory. And there he is with Moses and Elijah. And where's Moses and Elijah? What are they doing? Their eyes are fixed on Jesus. Moses isn't like, hey, let me see the streets here. Do they name any of these roads after me? Certainly there's like Moses Avenue, right? For all I did for those people. Can I see the temple? No, no, no. Where he's dwelling with God. He's dwelling with God. And his eyes are only for Jesus. Calvin Beisner says that when we boast in ourselves and our accomplishments or we crave fame or recognition or always insist on doing things our way or completing an agenda, we act as people without faith, without a God who can bring to fruition all that he intends. Instead, we act as if everything depended on us when in reality it depends on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this prayer of Moses. Uh, Lord, those requests, they are indeed ours, Father. We long to see what we do matters. We long to know you're at work. We long to behold it, to see it. We long, Father, for the children in our covenant community, the little girls we just baptized and all who would walk through this door, 
to know you and to know your wondrous works. We long to pass it on to them, Father. But will you make our longing always first and foremost to keep you as holy in our sight? You are God. You are our dwelling. And there is nothing this earth could offer. There is no temptation that could pull us away from who you are. Lord, we pray that you would establish the work of our hands. We pray for it in our community, in our church, in our families. Have pity upon us, Father. Show favor. Establish the work of our hands. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.